uh, verse 15, Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. It's page 817 if you need to use one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. Uh, but wow, we have a lot of material to go through. We are in part 11 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, Paradigm Shift. And I want to kind of jump right into it because that, that we're pretty well loaded with God's Word today. Uh, last time we were together on this series, Jesus was clearing the temple. You remember that? Uh, this is when Jesus was throwing over the tables, chasing the animals out, and completely disrupting everything going on in the temple. And everybody didn't know quite what to do with that. They were going to give him a pass because they knew that he's a miracle guy. They knew that he was popular and people liked this guy. And so they were going to give him a pass, but they were pretty agitated. And so we're going to call him pot-stirring Jesus, right? Where he just kind of gets in everybody's face and, and keeps causing problem. Well, he's going to continue to do that. We're in a season now of our series where you're going to watch Jesus go public and rattle everybody. So he's going to do a little bit more of that today. So let me, let me just explain why I think that Jesus blows stuff up. Here's, here's why I think that Jesus messes with you. Why he makes you uncomfortable in church. Why he makes you uncomfortable with life. I call it alteration for education. <laughs> and what that means is, is anytime you get into a pattern, you go into I assume mode and you stop learning. So any alteration kicks you into learning mode again because something blew up and you weren't expecting it. And so it was creating all these questions. Then suddenly you're motivated to learn. When you go into a rut, when you go into ritual, when you go into rote, when you go into everything's the same. Man, I walked into church last week, it's kind of like this. Walked into church this week, it's kind of like this. You assume on next week. So what God does is He alters something. He changes one of the elements. He alters the statistics so that now all of a sudden you're a little bit off. And so you're going, Lord, what are you doing here? And He said, ah, oh, that sounds like education mode. Now you're willing to listen to me. You're not blocking me out going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not in assumption mode. You are back into learning and seeking. And I think that's where God wants us continually. So I think that life has a lot of storms. You know, it's one thing for the disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee like they've always done their entire life. It's quite another when a storm shows up. It's quite another when one of them gets out of the boat and walks on water because he just got freaked out because Jesus is walking across the water top. Alteration for education. So today he's going to be blowing up your world again to get you into a mode of, seriously, is that true? I mean, is that what God thinks? Is that in the Bible? Is that, I mean, he's going to keep tapping on all these things that you and I think are maybe already locked down or maybe already sacred in our mind. So I would say this, you do not fully know Jesus. You do not fully know Jesus. You know a lot about Jesus. Jesus is your King, your Savior, your Lord perhaps. But you do not know everything there is to know about Jesus. Let us not put Him away as if we've been there, done that. Let us always be in a continual Lord, what are you trying to show me? What do you want from me? Jesus is not limited to our viewpoint. 
The reason why this is so important is because the ancient Jews missed it. That's why. The Messiah walked into their town and they missed Him. The Messiah began to do things and it wasn't how they wanted it and so they ultimately rejected Him. And so the question is going to come up to us, what if Jesus doesn't do things the way you want Him to do it? Are you going to reject Him? He didn't fit the mold of the Messiah that they wanted. At first, he looked like it. And they started putting their assumptions on him. But little by little, he did things that they didn't like. He messed with things that they thought were sacred. He violated that which they held most precious. And he demanded of them full surrender that they were not willing to give. They wanted a political revolutionary and they got a quiet king. They knew and understood from the Old Testament what theologians call today people, place, and presence. They understood that God was working with the Jews of saying, I want my chosen people in a place that I design called the promised land, experiencing my presence unhindered. They understood that, and they were going through a mental checklist in their mind that they had everything nailed down. And so in their mind, they're going, first of all, we are His people. Man, we're descendants of Abraham. We got this nailed down. Not only that, but you know what? We are experiencing His presence. We got the corner market on God. If God's going to do anything in this world, salvation comes through the Jews. We're good. You know what's really screwed up? is this whole place thing. Man, ever since Rome took over, everything's hijacked. So what we really need is God to come in and help us get our place back. And so their whole mind was bent on that. And then Jesus walked in and he was not the warrior that was going to fight Rome. And that was so highly disappointing to them. You're not the political revolutionary we want. We want you to go out there and lead that revolution. We want you to fight. Man, get us, get us motivated. Get everybody around this. Give us some guns. Let's do something, right? And then they got Jesus. And that was not at all what they expected. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus what you want? Or is he still elusive? Is he still disappointing you? Is he still changing things on you? Is Jesus the king that you desire? It all depends on what you want. Because if you want something that he's not about, he's going to be a very disappointing king. Because he's going to keep driving forward to what is best and what is right and what is good. And that may not be what you want. You may want everything to go well for you. And Jesus isn't going to allow that to happen. He's going to continue to blow things up. What are you going to do when that happens? You know, there's a number of doctrines in the Bible that show me I don't have my hands around Jesus, that I don't have him under control, that I don't have him into assumption, that I don't have him in a box. There are certain doctrines in the Bible that still blow my mind. I go, there's something I'm missing. I don't get it. One of those doctrines, hell. How do you reconcile hell with people you love that aren't saved? All you got to do is chew on that for a while and you figure out, I don't know the whole picture. Uh, there's something else going on. God has so much more data, so much more information that he's operating off of. And the way that I'm looking at it, I don't get it. And so what we do, here's what's so frustrating. What we do is we just go la 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 about that, shove that away and try to focus on the Jesus we like. You know what I'm saying? Here's the problem. You're not allowed to make a savior. You're only allowed to believe in the one that showed up. You cannot remake God in your own image. You are remade into His image. If you keep ignoring what you are uncomfortable with, 
He'll keep shoving it in your face. And so what we need to realize is that Jesus blows stuff up for our own good. And he's about to do that right here, right now. We begin with a passage that is out of chronology. I put it here because it speaks of how different Jesus was from what they expected. But it does not belong here. I slid it out of context and put it here, the passage in Matthew we're about to read, and it's very short, but it highlights how different of a Messiah he was to what they wanted. So let's just begin there, and then we will spend the majority of our time studying the story of the woman at the well, which is indeed a little bit more in line with where we should be in the series. But let's begin here in Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, aware that the Pharisees were going to get on his case because he kept messing up their Sabbath stuff, he withdrew from there. Jesus knew he was born to die, but everything was about timing. Today was not the day for him to die. So he was going to put that off. He withdrew from there. And many followed him. You see that? You know what many means in Greek? Many. (laughs) So many followed him. There's a whole bunch of people, there's crowds following this guy. They're all fascinated. They know he's miracle guy. They know he's preacher guy. They know he's this prophet, right? So they're all surrounding him, but then this is what blows some of our mind. Look at the next line. And what? And he healed them all. I'm sorry, he what? He healed them all. Right now, I just tapped on something that you're uncomfortable with. There are some of you in this room that go, you know what, maybe... Yeah, okay, you know what, right, I'm sure God heals, he doesn't really heal people. What? (laughs) Well, you know what, God used to heal, but here's the deal, Lance, let me just tell you what's going on. God really likes suffering. He's way more into suffering than he's into healing. And so this whole business, I mean, he's pretty stingy about the healing thing, because really, healing kind of jacks everything up, and and because I'm not seeing a lot of it, maybe he does that on the mission field, and, and, and there's a lot of wrestling about this whole idea. Right here, he blew your paradigm. He cleaned house. That is very rare. I'll give you that. A lot of times, we're used to familiar with the story of the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus walks over all the sick people and then goes to the one guy, heals the paralytic, and then bails out before anybody knows healers showed up. Right? And we think that's how Jesus always operates. So we got it in our mind that maybe somebody gets healed, but it's always in Africa. Right? And right here, he just blew your paradigm. He healed... All of them. And there's crowds. So what does that mean? How long did that take? Was it kind of like, you know, when somebody, you know, somebody says something, they're just like, man, I got a problem with my neck. And everyone's like, man, I got a problem with my neck too, right? Everybody started, did he heal all that? Did he heal Sniffles guy? You know, did he heal guy who was not ergonomically correct in his office place? And, you know, he cleans house. He heals them all. All. So in some way, you need to see that God is not stingy, that Jesus is not stingy uh, all the time with his healing, that sometimes he lavishes out abundance and you got to figure out what in the world that means. Because a lot of us will even say things like this. Okay, maybe he does heal people. He just doesn't heal people around me. Or maybe he heals people around me. He just doesn't heal me. And we have all these parameters uh, locked in like walls. And we keep telling Jesus what he's like. Jesus said, I am what what I am. So if I want to roll into town and I want to heal every single one of you, 
I can do that in an instant. Do not tell me what I can and cannot do. It keeps moving forward. Verse 16. And he ordered all the healed people not to make him known. Now, what? I thought it was the Great Commission, man. I thought we're supposed to go tell everybody. Healed people talk, right? I mean, that's kind of how it's supposed to go. It's all about timing. He's still in the process of revealing that he's the Messiah. And the minute that it goes public, he gets swamped. So he said, you guys, hold off right now. There's going to come a time for you to tell your story. It's just not today. Once again, that changes how we think of things. It's so important to be hearing what God is saying right here, right now. Not just going off old information. Oh, you got a systematic theology where everything works for you, right? I bet you anything you systematically remove Jesus. Let's be careful on that. Verse 17. Now that clearing house was for a purpose to fulfill that he's the Messiah. So he was saying, in essence... This is a snapshot of what it looks like when the real king comes into town. In heaven, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more hurting, no more disease. All that's going to get wiped out. So let me give you a quick snapshot. Everybody here that is sick, you're all healed right here, right now. And then everyone, wow, what kind of king is this? He said, that's only a snippet. It was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, says verse 17. Chapter 42, 1 through 4. Behold, there's our word. Seriously, check this out. My servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What? This is a quotation of God speaking about King Cyrus In the original context, who's King Cyrus? He's a pagan king of the Persian Empire. He's not even a believer. What a weird prophecy. Why are we quoting this about Jesus? Because not only did it apply to King Cyrus in part, because God used King Cyrus as his deliverer. King Cyrus carried out the will of God. But it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So here's in essence what he's saying. They all wanted a political revolutionary and here is the quote about him. Behold, my servant, meek and gentle. Everyone's going, dude, come on, let's kill somebody, right? And all of a sudden they get a meek and a gentle guy. Uh, My servant, meek and gentle, whom I have chosen, John 3, 16, because he loved the world so much. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. My son whom I desperately and totally love. I will put my spirit upon him. And they're going, now we're talking. Put your spirit on him. Yeah, we're talking Old Testament because this is still Old Testament context. I know we're in the Gospels, but remember, Gospels still operate under an Old Testament viewpoint. The Holy Spirit would come upon people for a purpose and a task And it was temporary. And then he would leave. That's why King David would say phrases like, do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. It was only an empowerment for a time. It was not until Pentecost that the Holy Spirit went inside. All right? So we're operating post-Pentecost. But we're reading right now pre-Pentecost. So he said, put my spirit upon him. And everyone's like, yeah, that's the Messiah we want. You remember what happened when Samson got the Holy Spirit? He was like ripping people apart. And he was ripping gates off. And he was doing all kinds of crazy stuff to attack the Philistine. That's what I'm saying. Bring down on the Messiah the Holy Spirit so he can get us free from Rome. And Jesus said, that's not what I'm doing here. 
He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What? Come on. They said, we're Jews. We're into the Jewish issues, man. I don't care about the Gentiles. When you proclaim justice to the Gentiles, you're all about them now? Yeah, I actually am. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What? No, okay, in America, that sounds normal. Where we're all taught to be polite and, you know, we try to keep our hands to ourselves and, and we're out on the streets and we kind of go about our business and, and we have areas like libraries where like, shh, right? In this little quiet contained Western modern mindset, it makes sense that Jesus would be quiet. He is in an ancient Middle Eastern context. Is the Middle East loud? Goodness gracious, yes it is. It is straight up, you can hire professional mourners and wailers for your funeral. Their job is to scream, right? I mean, here's the other thing. If you go pretty much into... Now, now some of the Asian cultures are a little more reserved. But in general, if you drop into the Middle East or you drop into areas of Europe, you're going to start hearing loud. I went with my brother a number of years ago to Italy. You ever been to Italy? Number one word you'll hear is no. And here's why. Every conversation sounds like someone's yelling. No, 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 and they start talking there. And I'm like, why is everyone angry at everybody? Everything's no. The first response is no on everything. And they're like, what? We're not arguing. We're just talking. You know, there's no anger there. They're just loud and passionate and everything. And they're no, 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 everything's no. And you're like, why can't you just say yes? I never heard anyone in Italy say yes. I don't understand what's going on. It was always no, right? But it's the idea that whether I'm in Turkey or I'm in Greece or I'm in Israel or wherever I've done my travels, I'm watching all this passion go crazy and all of a sudden their Messiah is, what, mellow? Come on. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will hope. What's a broken reed? Well, in the ancient world, reeds were used for three things. Support, measuring, musical instruments. If it's broken, guess what? You throw it away. A lamp that is lit by oil that has a smoldering wick means it's too low to be effective and all it's doing is giving off that smoke stuff into the house. Just get rid of it and get a new one. Here's what the Messiah said. All of you that society has said is now useless, you're my people. All the people that said, you know what, just forget them, get rid of them. It's the toughest, the strongest. You know what? It's survival of the fittest. Just go out and grab the biggest, baddest disciples, take charge, do what you need to do. And then there's little people in the corner that are scared and messed up and weakened and damaged. And Jesus said, those are my people. The Messiah rolls into town, grabs even the Gentiles who had been discarded by the Jews in their mind. He said, they are my people. And if you feel like you've been forgotten or you've been abandoned or it feels like there's, you're never going to be healthy again, Jesus said, I haven't given up on you. I'm still working with you. I get everyone else would discard you because you're too much work, you're too high maintenance, you're too much trouble. You know what? I specialize in broken. And Jesus welcomes you in and begins to say, I can remake you, I can restore you, I can transform you. You will be whole again. That's our Messiah. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Excuse me, John chapter 4, verse 1, page 888. John chapter 4, verse 1. So right there, you see that everything that they longed for in a Messiah with their assumptions, He was not, but He was so much more. 
But before he continues to rattle cages publicly, he has a few more things he wants to blow the minds of his disciples first. You got to get your crew on board. And Jesus is about to make them very, very uncomfortable. He is, as a matter of fact, going to make us very uncomfortable as well, just by reading a story that is just over 2,000 years old, right? John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left the southern area of Judea and departed again for the north, the area of Galilee. What it's saying is John the Baptist was super popular. As a matter of fact, he was like the big dog in the south. But now Jesus was getting even more popular, and that was making everyone uncomfortable. Man, this guy's rising in popularity. Everybody's going to do whatever he says. I don't know what to do with this guy. Maybe we need to shut this guy down. The minute that heat started turning up, Jesus said, I'm going to move north. There's going to come a time I'll go head to head with him, but we're early in his ministry. He's just getting rolling. So he doesn't want all that hassle right now. He's about to go north. Next phrase, and he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. What do you mean he had to pass through Samaria? No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, there's three routes to get north. Israel is only 120 miles long. So to get from the south to the north, you actually have three routes. You can go straight up the middle. That's the fastest way. And to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee is about a three-mile trip. Walking. Riding a donkey, whatever it is, right? If you want to go around, you can go on the east side of the Jordan River and then cut back across. That'll take you about six days. Or you can go the sea route, go along the beach route. Either way, you're going around the edges. That's probably another six-day route. So you go, why in the world would I not go three miles? And you're going, that's all Jesus is saying. Jesus is going, man, I want to get home. I want to hurry up and get home. If I got to go home, I got to go through Samaria. Samaria is this big area in the middle of Israel. Why wouldn't he just go through the middle? Because there's problems there. So he had to go through there, did he? Here's why I think it says that he had to go through there. Because his father had a divine appointment. And he needed to go meet a woman at the well. And she was right in the middle. So he was not about to go around anywhere. He was going straight through. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. That's just about a half mile outside the city between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Near the field that Jacob, who, whose name was changed to Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, had given to his son Joseph, that's the Technicolor Dreamcoat kid. And Jacob's well was there, a famous landmark. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Some texts say was sitting on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Romans count time starting from noon. That would make it 6 p.m. Jews start their counting at 6 a.m. That would make this noon. So whether it's noon or it's 6 p.m. does not ultimately change what I'm about to tell you. I would suggest that although John normally counts in Roman time, I think right here we got a Jewish time. Because noon makes more sense. It's hotter. They would have been exhausted. But either way, it doesn't matter. We have a context that if I don't lay it down for you, you're going to miss the entire story. You ready to hear a little bit of history? 
Okay, here's how it goes. King David, greatest king other than Jesus of the Jewish people, slayer of Goliath. He was leading the nation of Israel. Excellent. He had a son by the name of Solomon who was the smartest guy in the world, right? Well, Solomon choked. And ultimately, the nation after him split into two. They went into a civil war. There's 12 tribes. Ten of them remained calling the north. They were called Israel. They even had a capital city they renamed called Samaria. That sound familiar? The south were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They were known as the south or known as Judah because that was their biggest tribe. Or they were also known for their capital city of Jerusalem. They ended up operating completely independent. Had different kings, had different prophets. They even fought against each other. They did not like each other. So the whole nation was split for about a thousand years. In 722 BC, out of judgment from God, the Assyrian Empire came and took out the north. They carried the majority of Jews away, deported them to the Assyrian capital, which is Nineveh. And they backfilled with foreigners into the land. Now, why would you do that? It sounds like a lot of work. Because they were going for max takeover. Here's the problem. If you take over a city and you leave everybody there, what are they thinking of every day? How to get rid of you. They're united together in their hatred of you. But what happens if you take them away and backfill it with people who are new to the area? They don't care. That's called maximum takeover. That's psychological operations. So the Assyrians wipe out the Jews, only leave a certain portion of them, take the rest of them away, settle them somewhere else, bring in foreigners, and resettle the north. What's the problem with that? Jews are super fanatical about pure blood relations. They are all about being purely Jewish. If you're not purely Jewish, you're not Jewish. That screwed up everything. So now the South gets to judge the North. Check you guys out. You guys got bombed, right? No wonder God hates you. We hate you. And so you know what? Things aren't going well for you guys. Aren't even pure Jewish anymore anywhere. Now you're all a bunch of half-breeds. In 586 B.C., God took out the south. Oops! Now they have something in common. They get deported by the Babylonians, but their deportation was only about 50 to 75 years. That's a lot shorter than the hundreds of years the other guys had. So they end up getting to come back through King Cyrus... And when they get back into town, they're like, we got to purify this thing out. Everybody that is intermarried with somebody else, that's done. Get rid of that. We're going pure again. We're going all Jew all the time here in Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the walls. Well, the north is like, all right, you guys, listen. We got bombed. You got bombed. We got stuff in common. Why don't we just get along? We'll help you rebuild the city. And they're like, you half-breed. I want nothing to do with you. Well, that makes somebody irritated. Then the Samaritans are like, really? Really? Well, you know what? Now we're going to bomb you. And bad blood just kept going and going and going for the next 400 years till Jesus. It was, I defiled your temple, you defiled my temple. Why? Because if the north isn't allowed to join the south in Jerusalem, they have to have their own place of worship. So they put their own special temple on Mount Gerizim, their holiest area. And they're like, we're doing our own thing. Now, it was kind of like half Jewish, kind of like half other stuff. It was kind of mixed up. The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. 
So they didn't have a very well-rounded picture of God. And they both just hated each other. It's why the story of the Good Samaritan matters. Because Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. So now, in Jesus' day, Samaria was the middle area of Israel, and no Jew wanted to walk through their territory because that was a race problem. There was racism going on. They would go all the way around either side, but they didn't want to go through the middle. And Jesus said, what's that? Oh, I'm going through the middle. Watch this. And he walks right into the center. This is where it gets uncomfortable for them. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and, and Jesus said to her, because he's sitting on her well, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Pause. They went where to go buy food? Into a Samaritan town. Is that comfortable for them? Nope. And they all went in there. Jesus is like, no, seriously, y'all need to do a field trip. I want everybody going in. I'm fine. I'm good here. You know what? I can take care of myself. I need everybody going in to grab some stuff. I'm tired. You guys are taking care of me. That's cool. I want you to go hang out with the Samaritans for a little while. Lord, we don't like those people. I know. A Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things. They have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, now we have another problem. Not only is she a Samaritan and he's a Jew, she's a woman and he's a man. You go, so what? Ancient world. Ready? Men don't talk to women in public. That's unacceptable. Rabbis not only don't talk to women in public, they were encouraged not to talk to their wives or their daughters in public. It is a do nothing, be around no one of the opposite gender. Even in synagogue, you're walled off from each other. You do not sit next to each other. Men and women have no contact, and especially if you're a rabbi, because then it ruins your reputation. Jesus is blowing everything up right here. He's by himself, wrecking his reputation, talking as a rabbi to a woman with no one around to clarify whether something inappropriate happened or not. He's talking to a Samaritan and he's a Jew. She just dropped the bomb and said, maybe you don't understand, bud. Your Jews have this view of us Samaritan women that you have said in writing, we're on our period all the time. So anything that we touch is unclean. Dude, you want to borrow my bucket? Maybe you don't understand how bad the race relations are between the two of us. Let me remind you, we don't get along. You always tell us that we're not good enough. And you're asking me for a drink. Why in the world would you do that? Now, here's what should have happened. She approaches the well. His responsibility in Middle Eastern culture was that he should have backed off the well 20 paces and let her go. Block out. Don't even pay attention to her. Let her do her thing. When she gets out of there, he can go back over and sit on the well. That's how it should have been. Or if she sees him, she should have bailed out. Why the heck is she here anyway? Women in the ancient world traveled to go get water at the beginning of the morning. They would get water for the day and they would do it in the cool of the day at night. Because that's when it was easier to carry water. And they always traveled in groups for safety and for protecting of their reputation. It's the same reason why all women go to the bathroom together today. <laughs> Who knows what can happen between the restaurant table that you're sitting at and the restroom. So 
It's good that they're traveling in groups. She's all by herself. In the middle of the day, even if it's 6 p.m., it's still not time to go get water. Why are you by yourself? Here's another weird thing. There's a well in Sikar, a half mile where she just came from. Why is she not getting water from her own well from her own town? Why in the world is she out here? Something's different about this lady. Why is she engaging with him? Why isn't she bailing out? This is a tough gal. She could have just caved right there and didn't want anything to do with this guy. He could be a psycho. She doesn't know, but she keeps engaging with him. Said, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's weird. She thinks it's weird. Because here's what he's saying. If you had any idea who I was, you would have asked me for a drink. She's like, what? You're the dude with no bucket. (laughs) And you want me to ask you for what? Living water. Okay, living water is a little different in their language. Living water means running water, spring water that's moving. That's what living water means. So he's doing a play on words. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, but he's referring to running water. Now, though, Jacob's well is about 100 feet deep, and it bubbles up from the subsoil. It's an underneath water kind of coming up. So it's not a running water. It's fresh water, but it's not living water. So what he's saying in her mind is, I have access to a moving spring, which is cleaner, better, and I can get that to you. She's like, dang, that sounds awesome. The woman said, how is it that you, excuse me, she said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is super deep. Where are you going to get living water? What are you greater than our father, Jacob? The Samaritans thought that he was the man. Jacob's son, Joseph, was where they got their lineage from. The Samaritans were very tied to Jacob. He gave us a well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Meaning what? You think you're better than our patriarch, Jacob? This woman has a bit of a mouth on her. (laughs) Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'm going to give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty or keep coming here to draw water. That would be awesome. She's still very practical Nancy. Right? Her whole thing is like, I don't even like coming to get water. So if you got a way to hook me up with a faucet, that would be fantastic. That way I don't have to keep coming out here. I would love for you to help me out. Now notice she's calling him sir, but in a way she really has some agitation. She's frustrated by this entire thing. And Jesus keeps talking cryptically and going into all these other things. He said, man, when I get a hold of you, you keep coming here for a drink of water. What I have, and if you have a clue who I am, I'm talking about the indwelling power of God. I'm talking about how it wells up that your mercies are new every morning, that He is constantly renewing and remaking you and loving you and caring for you, that grace keeps flowing and keeps flowing and keeps flowing, that even when you sin, even when you're bad, there is someone that mediates for you, Jesus Christ, and that He's constantly transforming you and changing you into the image of the Son of God. I'm talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, and you're talking about water. But she couldn't get there. Now, I want you to notice that Nicodemus had a similar problem. Nicodemus came at night. She came during the... 
day. Remember, night is negative, day is positive. Here's a woman that's engaging with Jesus in the very same way as a critical leader that was male, and she's about to respond very differently. That's on purpose. Watch this. Jesus said, all right, let's go ahead and transform this conversation. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Well, what's he doing? He's messing with her. Why is he messing with her? Because he's going to go deeper. She keeps trying to skirt the issue. So he said, all right, let's go proper protocol, right? Whatever you need to hear, your whole family needs to hear. So why don't you go ahead and get your husband? I'm a dude. He's a dude. So we can talk publicly as dudes. So why don't you go ahead and grab your husband and come back here? And she said, I don't have a husband. Check out the hand, dude. No ring. Check it out. She thought she could get away with that. She just said, you know what? That's a great point. You said that you don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five of them. The one you have now isn't your husband. So what you said is technically true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) She keeps trying like dodge, weave, you know, this whole thing. And every time Jesus is in her face, in her face, in her face. And he's like, yep, you've had five of them. She's like, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, that's kind of why I'm here by myself, dude. It's kind of why I'm an outcast. It's kind of why I don't travel with a crew. Everybody's all over my reputation. I know my past. I know my baggage. Are you seriously bringing that up right now? You're going to dump all that into my face. Listen, obviously you're a God guy. And you've got all kinds of weird powers coming through you. I understand. That's really bizarre. So you know what? Maybe we'll go that route. She does not want to talk about her personal life. So she's going to change the subject again. Verse 20. Our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Suddenly she turns into a theologian. Right? Anything to talk, but talk about her personal stuff. She's like, you know what? We have a long time rival. You guys are saying Jerusalem. We're saying Mount Gerizim. So what do you think? You're going to get all political activist on me too? Jesus said, oh, I'm going way over that. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. Listen, you don't even have the full Old Testament, so we're not getting into this debate with you. We worship what we know as Jews, for salvation is from the Jews. That was clear through Abraham, through David. Yeah, that's how it's going to go. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such kind of people to worship Him. God is spirit, not contained in things or in places. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Girl, are you trying to get me into a theological debate? I will blow you out of the water. You're trying to tell me about places, sacred places. I'll tell you that there's coming a day right here in front of you. I'm standing here. I'm about to inaugurate Pentecost where all of a sudden it doesn't matter what location you are. We are now moving temples. We are now moving presence of God so that you don't have to go to a location and say God's over there. You can say God is right here inside me. God is now indwelling me. God is now close to me, infinitely close to me. And I don't have to run and go find a special site. He said, no, we're going way deeper than that. Well, finally, she's exhausted. She wants to shut this guy down. Enough is enough. So the woman said to him, well, I know that the Messiah is coming, right? I mean, we Samaritans got one named Tahib. Yeah, you guys got a Messiah coming. You know what? The one who's called Christ. When he shows up, I guess he'll solve all this problem for us, huh? And Jesus goes, yeah, that would be me. Ah, shoot. (laughs) No matter what she does, she can't get away from this guy. Sure enough, she's arguing with the Messiah. What? 
Literally, it says, I, the one who am speaking to you, am he, but he is not in the Greek. That means I, who am speaking to you, am. That's an I am statement. He's like, you're right in the presence of God. Where are you going to go now, girl? You got nothing. And right there, she snapped. And everything began to transform. Just then, his disciples come back. She could feel the heat from them, right? What are you doing talking to my man, right? Girl, did you... Are you going to say something? Right? To the other guys, they're like, dude, I'm not getting in Jesus' way. He's doing what he's doing. We all know how that works, so just back off. Let's just watch him for a second. Well, I was already just in a Samaritan village. I hated being there. Now this is so uncomfortable. The disciples come back. They marvel that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar. Now she can feel the heat. She's like, I'm out of here. I got to go get some stuff done. She drops her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. You know what just happened? She just got saved. She gets saved. And just like the disciples, they left their nets. She left her water jar. But here's what's powerful. Women aren't accepted as witnesses in the old ancient world. Jesus just called someone in society that is not respected and said, you are now my point person. Go. Jesus just utilized women in ministry as the critical person. You'll find out in, in later on, the men were at the burial, the women were at the resurrection. The first one that was ever contacted about the resurrection was a woman. Jesus completely changed the whole paradigm in how women operate and how women are in ministry. And He transformed everything. And that's just going to keep blowing up people's worlds. And they didn't know what to do with that. He sends her in. She was by herself for a reason, out of her shame. By the time Jesus got done with her, suddenly she becomes a public prophet. How did that happen? She's walking around talking with religious people who she would have never talked to before. But she doesn't care. She is so passionate, so excited about being changed and transformed with the idea that a Messiah is there. She drops what she has, knowing that she's going to come back and get it, knowing that she'd rather risk something like this and temporary in order to gain what was in the supernatural. And so she gets so pumped up, she chases in there, talks to the town, and they start pouring out to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, you got to eat something. And he said, i got food to eat that you don't even know about. So the disciples said to one another, what, did somebody bring him something to eat? They have no idea. He's like, ah. He said, all right, you guys, here's the deal. My food is to do the will of him, the Father who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Man, you guys, that's what fills me up. That's what's satisfying. I mean, here's the deal. I fasted, Jesus said, 40 days and 40 nights. You think I can't skip lunch? I'm good. I'm doing something that's... I'm pumped, man. I'm dropping a Samaritan revival on you. And you're worried about what I'm supposed to eat. No, I'm so fired up on what the Father is doing right now. You guys got to lock in with me. I don't care about food right now. Am I hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. But in my order of priorities, food comes down here. The will of my Father is way up here. Do you not even say, check out, this is why I'm so excited, he said. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Now, normally it's six months, but saying in a best case scenario, you've got to wait four months to get something after you work. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Look at all the people pouring out of this village coming to see me. Don't you see the fields are white for harvest? Already, the one who reaps, 
I just talked to this woman, is already receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper get to rejoice at the same time. For here the saying holds true. I get it. One person works, the other one reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What does that mean? He said, man, in the kingdom of God, you don't always have to wait like that. That you immediately can share the gospel and someone can get saved right there. Why? Because the kingdom of God is active and powerful and has been moving before you ever showed up. So anytime you talk to somebody about Jesus Christ, that is not the first time God has ever interacted with them. He's been working on them since the moment they were conceived. You're walking into a moving stream. God has already planted and other people have already been working on. He's been using all these incremental things. So by the time you interact with them, if they want to receive Jesus Christ, that's because, boom, that's when the harvest hit. He said, there's going to be so many times like that. Watch what's happening in this revival. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. That's two days of misery for the disciples. Wait, we're staying what? Where? Wait, we're staying in their house? Gross. We're going to eat their food? We're going to drink out of their stuff? Rabbi, you know, I trust you, man. But you do realize that we are now all unclean. Awesome. And Jesus is like, what is wrong with you? You still got all these preconceived ideas about how I work and what I do. You don't have a clue. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've even heard it for ourselves. That's encouraging going, you are totally right. And we know this is indeed the savior of the world. Hold up. How long is it going to take for the Jews to say that? Who's the first people in the Bible that says that Jesus is the son of God? The demons. How come the Samaritans and the demons and the Gentiles are all ahead of the Jews? Because of their preconceived ideas. You get, did you just get agitated by this message? Did we just start talking about women in ministry and you got a problem? Did we start talking about how women have now been uh, raised up and, and focused on by Jesus and he's shattering all kinds of paradigm? Does that make you uncomfortable? Because you got that one all nailed down, right? You already know how that all works? No, you don't. Is he talking about supernatural and talking about miracles and talking about transformation when he talks about healing everybody and what? You got all that nailed down too, right? You already have that one all figured out because you got Jesus in your back pocket? No, you don't. How many things do we got to step on right here? How many things does Jesus have to blow up in your life to begin to reveal to you that we don't have our arms around Jesus? You don't know how it works. We're learning and we're learning and we're learning and it never seems to go the way we want it to go. I mean, there are so many things after all this time of me being with Jesus, after all these years of knowing his word backward and forward, he's still blowing my paradigms. He's still changing and doing things that I don't understand. It's not going the way I want it to go. I have all kinds of things scripted out. I'm I'm taking notes and I'm writing it out. Even in this whole understanding of supernatural stuff, I have a way I want it to go and it's not going that way. It's driving me crazy. As a matter of fact... Just just a personal thing is that in my life, I had uh, God, I feel like God had touched me. And for the last six months, I didn't have any panic attacks. I didn't have any. I've had it since I was six years old. 
I haven't had a break like that in over a decade and a half. I finally feel like God was moving and He's healing me, right? And it's going through and I'm thinking, man, we got some victory. And then sure enough, the last two weeks, just blown up. Last night, not last night, the night before, woken up at three in the morning, full-blown panic attack, have to get meds just to get my head straight. It's not working the way I want it to work. It's not, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the broken one. I, all I do is cry out to God. God, why can't you touch me in this area? Why can't you just fix me in this area? Why does everything have to be hard? Why is it always a struggle every day? Why do I have to always worry if my body's going to blow out on me? I got to get up and I got to go do my job and not know what in the world's going to happen that day. So you know what? Here's what he begins to share with me. This thought comes into my mind. You know what? What if your congregation prays for you? I'm like, God, I want to be the dude that drops the information. I want to be the guy that helps them. They're suffering on their own. They don't need to be carrying me. And he said, yeah, but what if it's a very collective idea that I want to show them what it means to show healing and they have to stare at you every week because you are healed because I'm going to move through their prayers. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Right? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be focused on because of my weakness and my need. I'm sick of talking about it. I think the whole thing is old information. But I realized, wait a second, God is trying to change our paradigms. He's trying to change. He's trying to say, Lance, if I ask you to have your congregation pray for you, you have your congregation pray for you because you are weak and you need it. That's not how I want it. But it's how it is. So I am asking you, pray for me. I need you to understand in your heart, it's not just because I love you and you love me, but for the sheer health of the church. I need you to defend me. I am not always strong. I'm weak a lot. And you know what? As sweet-hearted as you are and as loving as you are, here's what I don't need. I don't need your advice on my anxiety problem. I need your prayer. I need you to fight for me. I need you to heal me. I need you to pray over me. That's what we need. So it... Uh... At four o'clock service last night, I'm sitting over there, and he he makes this plea: "My pastor, my my pastor, our pastor, makes this plea." And I sat there and did nothing, and I toiled with that all night long. I I lost sleep, and I woke up this morning, and I I had to get here. My wife looks at me and she says, what are you doing? What are you getting dressed for? I said, I gotta go. I said, last night my pastor asked for a prayer and I sat and I did nothing. They teach you in emergency classes, in CPR classes, that you have to point at someone and you, you call 911. You call for help. You have to assign that. I sat and assumed that we'd all do that. But I don't want to assume that we're going to. I want to make sure that we're going to. Amen.
So if you uh, wish to pray over Lance, uh, we just ask that you, you come forward. And he did not ask us to do this. It just happened um, that the Lord did that last night. So we're just going to pray a blessing over him.